0: Take your Bibles and join me in Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah chapter nine. I trust that you had a good Thanksgiving. Yeah, good, good. Uh, you all looked very satisfied when you came in. So I, I had a wonderful Thanksgiving. But here's what I can't help but notice: Thanksgiving is now over, which means in America, in the general decorum of society, that Christmas season is now in full swing. And, and that makes many of you very, very happy. And I'm glad that we all agree that it's the appropriate time to get Christmassy right now. You know, people have strong feelings about when you start throwing yourself headlong into Christmas. You know, when do you start cranking up the songs? When do you start, you know, busting out those ugly sweaters and all that stuff? People feel very strongly about when the right time to do that is. After Thanksgiving, we don't really contend about that. But but where you land on that timing issue can place you in one of three categories. Now, some of you, you are never not in the Christmas spirit. I mean, you came out of the womb humming jingle bells. I mean, you are just ready to go, right? You never took your lights down. They're still up from last year. You were hauling out your decor before Halloween, and so you are ready. There's another group out there, they're the humbugs, and they're just like, leave me alone, I'm enjoying my life, don't you hit me with that Mariah Carey song, I will hurt you, I'll hurt you, because it'll be stuck in my head. And they feel very strongly about it. Then you've got a third group that they're kind of, you know, they're navigating between the two, you know? It's like, they're like, well, I'm excited about Christmas, but I just feel bad for the fall, you know? I just want to just give a moment to the fall. Can we just all sit here and enjoy our pumpkin spice latte and, you know, and wear our fall colors and all of that? And, uh, and then they, they're like, I just want Thanksgiving to have its due, you know? Have you seen the meme? Somebody reminded me of this meme the other day, and it's funny. There's a Santa Claus. He's an inflatable lawn Santa. He's on his side. There's a big inflatable turkey sitting on top of him with a sign that says, wait your turn, fat boy, you know? Well, Thanksgiving is over and so in the spirit of all of that, what I would add is that not only is it appropriate culturally to get into Christmas, but if you are a Christian, you understand that Christmas is not about Santa and frosty and red and green and all the lights and everything. It's about Jesus and therefore it's always appropriate no matter what time of year to talk about Christmas because it's always appropriate to talk about Jesus. And so in that spirit, we are starting a series today. It is a Christmas series, first series that I've ever begun here at the Lamb's Chapel. And this is not an Orthodox Christmas series. It's a little bit different. We call this the Cast Off Characters of Christmas because most Christmas series in church are gonna focus on on, uh, the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, Joseph. Jesus is certainly gonna be central in this series, but we are gonna take a special uh, look at the supporting cast of the Christmas narrative, kind of the B characters, if you will. Why are we looking at these lesser characters? Because God used others in a very instrumental way in this momentous event called the birth of Christ, and by studying them, we are going to unpack some some grand theological themes that deal with the sovereignty of God, with the supremacy of our God, and they're going to show us the cohesiveness and the unity of scripture, and ultimately, this service is gonna serve to demonstrate that the, the Christmas story, the narrative of Christ's birth is not just some pretty story that we bust out once a year because the calendar demands it. It is essential to the overarching theme of the word of God and his almighty plan for mankind. And that's what we're gonna look at. And today we're gonna start with a group that does not tend to make the cover of the Christmas card. They are not featured prominently uh, in, in culturally when it comes to Christmas. And we call this group the Prophets. The prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they are not contemporary with the birth of Christ. They precede the birth of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of something called the law of proportion? What is the law of proportion? The law of proportion says that you can tell how much uh, value an author gives to a subject by how much real estate that subject occupies in his book. And when you look at your Bible, did you realize that over a third of your Bible is predictive prophecy? Over a third. That is just astounding. But you know what's even crazier than that? That given the amount of real estate it occupies in scripture, there are many, 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 many churches that never touch it, that skip prophecy altogether. And there are pastors that offer reasons for this. They're not good reasons, but they're reasons nonetheless. They say, well, prophecy isn't really relevant to right now. Oh, oh, contraire. They say, well, people find it too controversial. Okay, well, I'm not steering away from the controversy in scripture because there's a lot that's controversial about our Bible. They say, well, the people don't understand it, to which I say, you mean you don't understand it. <laughs> and there's a lot of pastors that, frankly, they don't get it and they're scared of it and they don't want to put the time in to study it Here's what we're going to do at Lamb's Chapel Church. We're going to teach the whole counsel of God's word. How about that? And so we're not going to shy away from that. There's a lot of value in studying Bible prophecy. When you study prophecy, you get comfort in death. You get confidence against false teaching. You get a sense of purpose. You get a sense of urgency. But here's, here's something that's really valuable about bible prophecies that one of the great things about it is that it is a powerful apologetic for the validity and the authenticity of God's word you can know that that book you hold in your laps or digitally perhaps is the very word of God because the fulfilled prophecy therein supports that fact let me give you an example there are a lot of prophecies in scripture that have already come to pass one such example Uh, is found in Isaiah 44. And what I want to show you right now in your notes is this overarching theme, which is that prophecy is history in advance. It's history in advance. It's a powerful reason that we can be confident that the Bible is true. So Isaiah 44 tells us about someone named Cyrus. The prophet says that the Lord says of his servant Cyrus that he will rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and lay a foundation for the temple. Now, when, when Isaiah said that, the people must have reacted with incredulity. They must have said, what are you smoking, prophet? Uh, the city doesn't need to be rebuilt. It's, it's intact. They couldn't understand. Rebuilt, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Furthermore, who's Cyrus? There was nobody named Cyrus on the scene. Well, get this. 100 years after that prophecy was written down, In 596 B.C., a guy named Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes in to Jerusalem, levels the city, demolishes the temple, enslaves the people, takes them into Babylon, into exile. And then later on, the Persian Empire comes along, conquers Babylon. And in 537, the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, issues a decree That Jerusalem, the homeland of the exiled Jews, be rebuilt. So what was predicted in the scripture was fulfilled in human history and that validates the word of God. There's so many examples of that. We're going to be looking uh, at more of that after the new year on a Wednesday nights. We're going to have a time I'm not sure when yet, but we'll announce it. It's going to be a prophecy series, and we're going to do that. But there are many other prophecies in the Old Testament that pertain to the birth of the Messiah. And when Jesus was born, he fulfilled a lot of these prophecies. For example, Isaiah 7 says, therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. You shall call him Emmanuel. Well, Jesus was born of a virgin. We read that in the Gospels. Micah prophesies about the location of the Messiah's birth. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are too small to be considered among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth a ruler. Where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophet's words. In Jeremiah, it speaks of a voice crying out in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping, Rachel, Rachel. One of the matriarchs of the Jewish people weeping for her children. Well, in Matthew we see this wicked King Herod in a fit of jealous rage decreeing that all the male children in Bethlehem be put to death because the Magi told him king of the Jews is coming. He says, I'm the king of the Jews. So he seeks to wipe them out, prevent the king of the Jews from being born. We see the fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah. Hosea, it says, out of Egypt I called my son. That was fulfilled in Matthew when uh, in, in the aftermath of Herod's lunacy, Mary and Joseph flee and they take the Christ child down to Egypt. And so we see this fulfilled in the case of the Messiah. But here's what I want you to see as we get into this today. In your notes, that of all the Old Testament prophecies foretelling Christ's birth, Isaiah best provides the reasons for his coming. You see, we're not simply going to look in this series at the data. We're not simply going to look at how cool it is that all of these prophecies match up with history. We're going to look at the purpose of God behind it all. Because in this book of Isaiah, we're going to see Christ's first coming predicted, but we're going to look beyond that to Christ's second coming predicted. Can't wait to get into this. Would you bow with me right now, Heavenly Father? I just ask your blessing upon the reading of your word. We need your spirit to understand it, God. Prophecy is complex, but it is profound, and it is powerful, and we want to see your hand at work, and we ask your blessing with us today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Isaiah is our text, Isaiah chapter nine. We could not have a better text today. You could call this the gospel of Isaiah. That's what you could call this text. Did you know that Isaiah means God's salvation, that's what the name means. Now there are other names, other Hebrew names in the Old Testament that mean virtually the same thing. Hosea, okay, Joshua, they, they basically mean that. Joshua means Jehovah saves. Now if you were to take any of those names and drop them into the New Testament era of Judaism, they would probably be called Yeshua, Yeshua. Now we know somebody who is also known as Yeshua, don't we? Jesus. And so Isaiah and Jesus mean the same thing. God saves. Jehovah saves. And this text is a prophetic presentation of the gospel. God raises up this prophet in a very, very dark time. Excuse me. You see up in the northern region of Israel you had an invasion by the Assyrian empire. They came in there, they slaughtered people, they they enslaved the people, it was a very dark time. It was a judgment of God because they had drifted from him. They had pursued idols, so God judged them. Same thing is about to happen in the south of that nation with Babylon. And so in between the judgment of the Assyrians in the north and the judgment of the Babylonians in the south, you've got this prophet, you've got Isaiah. And Isaiah is a picture of the entirety of the Bible. If you could take the Bible and you could squash it down into one book, you'd have the book of Isaiah. How many books are in your Bible? 66. How many chapters are in Isaiah? 66. The Bible has 39 books on judgment. We call that the Old Testament. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah speak of a God who would judge. In your Bible, you've got 27 books on grace. We call that the New Testament. In Isaiah, from chapter 40 to the end of that book, you've got 27 chapters that speak of a God who saves. And so Isaiah is the Bible in miniature form. It is a difficult book to teach. It is a magnificent book. And so I'm excited to look at this one chapter today. So he's just finished with eight chapters talking about the darkness that has invaded the land. He's talked about what what has befallen Israel, what will befall Israel because of their rejection of God, because of their adoption of idolatry. And so God is going to judge them. And that's why if you glance across the page at chapter 8, the very last word in chapter 8 is the word darkness. But it is in the midst of this darkness, as we open up chapter 9, that Isaiah is now going to start talking about hope. And there is a hope that is gonna pierce the darkness. And this hope will come in the form of a baby boy. And so in your notes, Isaiah tells us about this long-awaited, soon-coming Messiah. And the first thing that we know about him from the text is that he will bring light, life, and deliverance. And we're gonna talk about, we're gonna break that down. Let's talk about the light. Look at verse one. It says, but there will be no gloom for her Who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so, as we stop right there, what he's talking about, this contempt in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, that is that northern area that is named for a couple of tribes of Israel. And it is the the area that has been invaded by the Assyrians in the past. They've laid waste to it. They've enslaved the people that were there. And then they became, that area became a vassal state of sorts. You had a lot of Assyrians that began to populate and live in that area. And it became known to the Jews as Galilee of the nations. Some versions say Galilee of the Gentiles. You see, because the Assyrians were not Jews. They were Gentiles, which meant They were pagans. And yet Isaiah prophesies that despite that, in verse 2, that someday that area that that was so dark where the Assyrians dominated, something's going to happen there. Look at verse 2. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And so he's prophesying in the latter times, this is what will happen. Uh, Your Bible may have a cross-reference here from Matthew because Matthew quotes this verse right here. And so the idea that Isaiah is conveying is that the people of this northern land who have been subjugated, they will be the people eventually, they will be the first ones to encounter the light. How so? Well, in that land populated by Gentiles, there is a city and the name of that city is called Nazareth. Nazareth. Who grew up in Nazareth? Jesus Christ, he's Jesus of Nazareth, right? Now, Nazareth had a reputation. This was not a place that you wanted to be from. Nobody wanted to say that they were from Nazareth. Uh, it, you know, uh, it was unsavory as far as the Jews were concerned. First of all, there was a lot of Gentiles there. They, they didn't like the Gentiles. They thought they were unclean. They looked down their nose at them. So there was a bias against them. And furthermore, this was a rather seedy place to be. It was very filthy. Uh, the Nazarenes hated the Romans and so the Romans would march through the streets the Nazarenes would throw all their garbage and their refuse and their waste uh, out into the streets, so that when the Romans would march through they'd have to wade through all of this garbage and so the city had a stench It, it became known as the city of garbage sounds pleasant doesn't it and so there was a saying can anything good come from Nazareth can anything good come from Nazareth you might remember in John's gospel Philip Spends a whole day with Jesus, and then he runs and he finds his friend Nathaniel under the fig tree. He says, "Nathaniel, c- come quick. you got to meet him. We found him. We found the one of whom Moses and the prophets spoke, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, right, right, sure you did. Naz- Naz- can anything good <laughs> come from Nazareth? Uh, we- you didn't want to be from a place like that because in those days, where you were from was part of your name. And so if you wanted people to know that you were, you know, uh, uh, wise and educated, you'd say, you know, I'm I'm Bob of Athens. Or if you wanted people to know that you were religious and pious, you'd be Joe from Jerusalem. You know, or if you wanted people to know that you were elite and important, you'd be, you know, Roger from Rome. Uh, But you would never want to be so-and-so from Nazareth. That's like... That's like, uh, must have been like what the elders thought when they first looked at my resume and they saw Scott Grimm of Modesto, California, pass, you know. (laughs) But it is this area of ill repute that would first encounter the Christ. He would grow up here amid the pagans, amid the Gentiles. Isn't that almost a prophetic foretaste of what would eventually come to pass, that great numbers of Gentiles would come to knowledge of Jesus Christ because that's that's like the far fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant God said Abraham through your seed all the families of the earth are going to be blessed all the gen not just Jews Gentiles too hey I'm awfully glad about that here's a Gentile that's really grateful for that fulfillment and speaking of that covenant Isaiah goes on to verse three he says you have multiplied the nation talking about Israel That's the fulfillment of God's uh, covenant with Abraham. He said, I'm going to make your your descendants like the stars. I'm going to make them like the sand on the seashore. I'm going to make them mighty and great in number. He says, you've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so... Here we see he's not, this Messiah is not just gonna bring light, he's bringing life. There will be blessing that is yet to come into this land. This is a prophecy that is looking past the first coming of Messiah to the second, the second coming of Messiah. And then some, he's looking ahead to a time when the Messiah will return, having departed. And then he will bring this covenant people. Who are part of the Abrahamic covenant, he's gonna bring them into the new covenant, and they shall prosper and experience blessing like they've never known before. They will be the greatest nation on earth. And then notice, not only light, not only life, but deliverance. He's gonna bring deliverance. Look at verse four. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. Now remember when uh, in the book of Judges, Israel was attacked by Midian, by the Midianites. And so what did God do? He sent in Gideon to deliver them. And this is something that he did. Whenever they were attacked by a pagan power, he would send in a judge. He'd send in a deliverer to liberate them. And these were all kind of short-lived because eventually the people would come out from under God's authority and he would let them be judged again and then he'd rescue them again. Well, there is a deliverance coming that is going to be a final, permanent deliverance of the Jewish people. See, the Jews had this view of Messiah that he would be a military liberator. And people often knock them for that. They go, that's not why Jesus came. Well, ultimately it will be. so they got the idea right they just got the timing wrong they didn't understand what had to be accomplished first and foremost but one day he will finally and utterly liberate them look at verse five it says for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire let me help you with that right there what does this mean Well, we're talking about the Assyrians. This is a reference to the Assyrians. When the Assyrians conquered a people, what they would do, their their manner was to terrorize them. It wasn't enough just to conquer them. They had to strike fear into their heart. And so the Assyrians would take their cloaks, they'd take their boots, their garments, every piece that they wore, and they would dip them in the blood of the fallen, of the people that they had slain, and they'd roll their clothing in that blood. And then they would put the clothing back on and they would parade in front of the, the surviving captive people that they had conquered and allow these people to have fear struck into their heart as they see them walk around draped in the blood of their fallen loved ones. And what God is saying is that someday I will take the enemies of my people and their garments will be fuel for burning after we pillage and destroy them. Now that is a sweet little Christmas story to share with your family this holiday season. Can you imagine? You're you're right around the tree there and you open up Isaiah and you read that. Uh, But uh, you get get the picture. This is the long-range plan of the Messiah. God's telling his people, I'm gonna give you light and life and don't forget the deliverance part. And sometimes deliverance is pretty hardcore. You didn't know Christmas was so hardcore. So, he says, I'm gonna come through my promises here. We, we have gone through the first five verses now. Now we're gonna camp out on verse six. We're gonna camp out. Look at verse six. Now this will sound familiar to you. This is, this is the part of Isaiah you normally hear at Christmas time. It says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Can you just hear the strains of Handel's Messiah cranking up right there? There is a reason that these words are associated with what we call the Hallelujah chorus because this reading is worth a Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I got amens and Hallelujahs. All right. So let's break this down. Here's what we learn about the Messiah from the first line of verse six. The first thing that we learn, number two, is that he, the Messiah, will be human, he will be Jewish. And of course, male. Uh, He's a he, after all. So verse six says what? There will be a child born. He's gonna be born. What does that mean? That means he's, he's a human. He's flesh and blood. It's a physical coming. This is not God coming spiritually. In some spiritual figurative sense, this is a literal, physical human being that is God in the flesh, all right? Then, not only will he be human, he'll be a Jew. He's going to be Jewish. Isaiah says, for to who is born? To us. Who's us? Isaiah and company. What ethnicity is Isaiah? He's Jewish. So this is a Jewish child right here, and not just a Jewish child. It says a son. A son is given. This is a Jewish male, a Jewish man. He's the Messiah. Now, I've heard that in devout Jewish families, whenever a male child is born, they read this text. Why do they do that? Because devout Jews have not accepted or embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so they think he's still coming for the first time. And so every male Jewish child born to a devout family, they think this could be it. This could be him. And so there's a hope there that finally the redeemer, uh, the, the, the deliverer, the restorer is here to bring light and life and deliverance like Isaiah said. Very sad that they don't know yet one day, one day. They will come in droves. And in verse six, it goes on to say, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Some versions say the government will rest upon his shoulder. The right way to interpret this is that the government will arrive. The government will arrive on the shoulder of Messiah. Now, when I say the word government, what words pop in your head? Don't say them out loud. We don't need any profanity in the room. We often think of negative connotations when we hear the word government. Why is that? Is it because our system, there's a problem with the idea, the concept of government, or is the problem the governors? It's not the system, see, it's the people running the system. When we think of that system, we think of what they do, the bad laws, the taxes, the corruption. There's a problem with the rulers. It's not our, in fact, many systems of government, government are not bad, they're good. I mean, I think of monarchies, that's what Israel had, monarchy, that's just a reflection of heaven. Heaven is a monarchy, it's got a king at the top, right? The problem is not monarchies, it's monarchs, human monarchs, there's never been a human monarch that is not flawed in America, we've got a republic, that's a pretty good system of government, as long as that republic recognizes nature's God outside of the republic. If they don't recognize nature's God, You got a problem, but when Messiah returns, he is gonna bring with him God's true definition of government. He will epitomize government. It will be the definitive form of government. Number three in your notes, his reign will be definitive and total. Definitive and total. He's gonna show you this is God's design. This is how government is meant to be conducted. But we are not awaiting a system. We are awaiting a perfect ruler. He will be a perfect ruler. All human attempts at government have fallen. They've all been corrupted. The goal has always been to bring in utopia. Is that a wrong goal? Well, technically no, because it's God's, plan to bring that in. Our problem is we can't bring it in. We can't do it. God's going to do it and he's going to do it through the second coming of his Messiah, a perfect king. He cannot be tainted. He never lies. He will only make wise decisions. He'll have no need to consult with anybody. There won't be a brain trust at the top that he consults with. There was a great preacher named S.M. Lockridge who had a famous sermon called, that's my king. Have you heard this? And in that sermon, he says, you won't be able to lead him astray. You can't corrupt him. You can't defame him. You can't undermine him. You can't impeach him, and he's not gonna resign. That's what he said. (laughs) I love it. I love it. He'll be a perfect ruler. And Isaiah seeks to identify this ruler. Now, he doesn't know his name. We know his name. But Isaiah, it's gonna be 600 years later after Isaiah. Isaiah. But what he does is he proceeds now, moving forward, to give him a list of titles. And these titles are not titles that any mortal human being could ever adopt or claim. What we learn about him, first of all, number four, is that he will have a divine nature. A divine nature. As we look at the text, it goes on. It says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now in your Bible there might be a comma in between Wonderful and Counselor. Just ignore that comma, it doesn't belong there, okay? Older versions have a comma. These are not two separate concepts, this is one concept. All these titles are in duet, and so Wonderful modifies Counselor. Now let's look at that word Counselor. This does not mean that he is a Wonderful Therapist. All right? He's not a Wonderful Attorney. Not that kind of counselor. Can you imagine? The Messiah is a lawyer. Oh no. Oh no. No, he is a counselor. What does that mean? That means he's a teacher. He is our teacher. He counsels us. He instructs us. How does he counsel us? In what? Uh, In what is right. In what is true. What is honoring to God. He teaches us by his actions, what he does. As our king, we learn by watching him rule. We observe his works and we are counseled in the way of righteousness. But he's not a normal counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. That word wonderful is the Hebrew word pele. Pele. Now do you guys remember the Brazilian soccer player pele? one of the great athletes of all time, one of the world's most famous athletes in his day. Uh, I always assumed Pele was a Portuguese name, but I have found out that was not his birth name. That was not his birth name. It was a nickname, and it's not Portuguese. It's Hebrew. You know what it means? It means miracle. It means miracle, and in the Old Testament, this word is used exclusively to refer to the nature of God um, as being above man in wisdom and power, and the things that God does can only be attributed to God. So when we speak of miracles, we're not talking about things that people pull off. We're talking about things that only God can do. That is what this word means. And so this is a claim of divinity. And we see the word uh, when, when, when God told Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a child at age 100. What did Sarah do? She did that. She laughed. She laughed. She laughed. And what did God say? He said, is anything too hard for God? The word hard is Pele. That's what's used there. He's basically saying, is anything too much of an act of God for God? Isn't that something? And so that's his nature. And because that's his nature, number five in your notes, he will do divine works. If he is divine, his nature is divine, his works are divine. Here's the next title that Isaiah gives him. In the the text there it says, he's a mighty God. He's a mighty God. That is a term that is used in the Old Testament when it's spoken of God's intervention into uh, the nation of Israel to remove them from hostile, destructive enemies. Uh, you've got the Babylonians, after Isaiah's time, you've got a different prophet, Jeremiah. And God speaks to his prophet Jeremiah. Babylonians are at the door. They are, the walls are starting to crumble in Jerusalem. And God tells his prophet to go and to buy a field so Jeremiah, I want you to go buy a field. Jeremiah's got to be like, uh, God, we're under siege right now. You're aware of this, right? You want me to buy? Is, is real estate really the thing I should be focused on? I mean, I realize it's a buyer's market right now, and rates are pretty good. But God says, no, you don't understand. What I'm asking you to do, this is an act of your faith, Jeremiah. It's an act of your faith, and your faith in my faithfulness, because Jeremiah, you're going to be dragged into, uh, uh, as a nation, dragged into exile, but Jeremiah, I'm going to bring you all back. I'm going to bring you back. That is my word to you, O prophet, and if you purchase this deed, I want you to put it in a clay jar, keep it safe, because after 70 years of exile, you come back. That deed is going to be an example of the faith in my faithfulness, because I am a mighty God. And Jeremiah says, oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes. And so we see that there. So he's got might and strength. And not only that, but number six in your notes, this Messiah will rule with an eternal heart. Excuse me, an eternal love, an eternal love, an eternal love. Isaiah says, not only is he a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, but he is an everlasting father. He's an everlasting father. This is really a continuation of the fact of his deity right here. Uh, I've heard some Jehovah's Witnesses take on this text. They say, well, you know, the previous title, Mighty God, um, that doesn't mean that he is equal with God the Father, who is the almighty God. You see, Jesus is the mighty. God is the almighty, and their, their implication is that Jesus is not equal with God. Well, if you ever hear that, you just take him to this part and say, oh, you missed this part. You say Jesus is not equal with the Father. Well, right here it says he's an everlasting Father. An everlasting Father. That means he is of the same divine essence as God the Father. It's like <clears throat> what Hebrews says, that, that he, is, he is the exact radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, And that will never be more apparent than when Christ returns the second time and he reigns. And you watch him reign as a a righteous king. A king is said to to be a father to his people. That the people that, that he rules are like his children and there is an everlasting love that he employs as he rules and reigns over them. A good shepherd who will make Israel to lie down in safety. And when you take a divine being, a father who becomes a king with might and power in one hand and with love and mercy and compassion in the other hand, then you bring about this next title. It goes on in verse six. It says, he's a prince of peace. He's a prince of peace. Now, there are two concepts here. First, there's a concept of prince, uh, which means number seven in your notes, he will be the rightful heir. The one called Christ will be the rightful heir To what? A prince is the rightful heir to the throne of his father. Who's his father? The king. And so there is a, prince is a judicial title implying rights to the throne. Jesus is the son of God, who is our heavenly king, but we're talking about a physical kingdom, and so here's how God works. Uh, It's not merely the fact of his Divinity as the Son of God that gives him the right to the messianic throne of Israel. God has seen to it, because this is how he rolls, that the Messiah will fulfill that right in human terms. And in the Old Testament, God had dictated via covenant that the Messiah would come through the line of King David. Had to. The Messiah would absolutely be of David's line. Nobody outside of David's line could ascend to David's throne and therefore could not be considered the Messiah. Well, guess who was a descendant of David? Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. He was of David's line. You might recall that's why they were going to Bethlehem for the census, because he was a descendant. Bethlehem the city of David. Joseph was of the line uh, of David. That's why they were going there. Now you might be doing a little bit of thinking here. How could, how could Jesus have a right to the throne because his father was descended from David? Because if you really think about it, Jesus was not related to Joseph by blood. It was, it was, it was the conception of the Holy Spirit. And so there's no blood relationship to Joseph. Well, Joseph adopted Jesus, but it, it's actually more complicated than, than this whole blood thing because you see, Joseph didn't actually have a right to the Davidic throne. How so? He's descended from David. Well, the problem is that Joseph had a wicked ancestor. You see, if you were to go back in the lineage, as you can see from from Matthew, the genealogy that led to Jesus, you go back in there, you see a name there, and the name in that lineage is Jehoiakim you've got a king of Israel named Jehoiakim Jehoiakim was a wicked wicked king we don't know what he did but he was bad and it was so bad that God cursed him and he cursed not only King Jehoiakim but his entire line that was to follow after him the curse was that not one of Jehoiakim's descendants would ever ascend to David's throne well how do we get a messiah then what, what, are we, what are we gonna do about that? I mean, if you think about it, were it not for the sin of an ancestor, when we open the Gospels, Joseph ought to be on the throne of David. He would be king of Israel. Joseph. And yet, he doesn't complain about that. He just assumes the role of a humble carpenter from Nazareth. kind of gives you a lot of respect toward Joseph. But what, what you don't know perhaps, is that there are two genealogies pertaining to Jesus. You've got the book of Matthew that shows how Jesus is descended from David through his father, Joseph. Uh, It also goes through David's son, Solomon, and that line contains Jehoiakim. Ah, but there's another genealogy in the book of Luke. And in Luke, we see a genealogy of Jesus on his mother's side, And it turns out that Mary is also descended from King David. But not through David's son Solomon. It's through David's son Nathan. And guess who does not appear in that genealogy from David to Nathan all the way to Mary and Jesus? You don't see Jehoiakim, the object of God's judgment and wrath and cursing. Which means... That Jesus has a right to the throne on his father's side in a royal sense. He's got a right to the throne on his mother's side in a legal sense. And what this means is that there is literally only one human being in all of history who is the legitimate, rightful heir to the messianic throne according to prophecy and his name is Jesus Christ. You can't make this stuff up, guys. Amazing things happen when you study the word of God. But he's a prince, and, and not only that, he's a prince of peace. Which means, number eight in your notes, he will bring about righteous reconciliation. Righteous reconciliation. What is peace? It's not merely the absence of war. Sometimes we, call it, we refer to peace time, and that means we don't have any soldiers dying on the battlefield somewhere. This is an ultimate peace. For mankind, ultimate peace means reconciliation between a guilty people and a righteous God. And from the moment that we fell in the garden... We have needed this reconciliation. Adam sinned and th- Paul says through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. But there's coming another man that that's going to be restored. It's the man Jesus Christ. And so that's why he had to be born of a virgin, untainted by sin. That's why he lived a perfect life, that he would go to the cross. He would die for our sin, atoning, paying the price for our sin so that anybody who puts his faith in him would receive what? Peace. Peace reconciliation you can't have peace if you don't know grace you got to have grace to have true peace because peace is reconciliation with a righteous God and it requires grace because you have a sin nature and a sin debt and you can't overcome that gap without him and this is why Paul writes in nearly all of his letters he starts and he says grace to you and peace through God the father you got to have grace if you know grace You can know peace. And not only will we have reconciliation, but we're going to live in a kingdom with this Messiah. Look in your notes at number nine. His reign will be forever. His reign will be forever. Uh, Isaiah continues on of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. Everybody say, there will be no end. All right, he goes on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Everybody say, forevermore. Forevermore. All right, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? What's this kingdom gonna be like? It's a kingdom without end. Every kingdom that has ever existed has ended. You go back, Babylon, gone. Persia, gone. Greece, gone. Rome, gone. Folks, I love America. It's not gonna last Forever. One day, it's gonna be gone, but this is a king that will have everlasting dominion. It's a kingdom that shall never pass away. Daniel, the prophet, in chapter seven of his book, he sees a vision of all the world empires that I just listed, and then he sees another kingdom coming in the clouds, um, someone like the son of man. And he says, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. A kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And this kingdom, Isaiah says, will be upheld with justice and with righteousness and nobody living in that kingdom, and we're gonna be there, church. Nobody living in that kingdom is gonna talk about the good old days because those will be the best days. Nothing will compare to them. And here's the capstone. Isaiah closes it out. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And what this means, number 10, is that his coming will happen because of God's faithfulness. God is faithful. Not just his first coming. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That already happened, right? The Lord came. He came. We can also have faith in His second coming. He's going to come again. And God's solution for the salvation of society, it turns out, is the same as His solution for the individual soul. It's through grace and peace in Jesus Christ. He's going to bring it not merely in a spiritual sense in the hearts of people, it's going to come eventually in a literal sense. Not now. But when he returns, I don't believe, I think it's a a heretical view to think that we can bring in the kingdom, that we can do it, that we can create a dominion right here and that he'll just assume, he'll just step into what we have created. No, it's gonna take the Messiah coming back a second time, a second time. Are you trusting in that today? If you trust in that little baby in the manger, you are believing in the same God who is gonna return in in the form of Christ, and he will rule over the whole earth. I wanna be there, don't you? I wanna be there. And so we can trust that this prophecy is going to be fulfilled because he says it's going to happen. In your notes as we close, behold, because we can trust in the what and the who of prophecy, we can trust in the why. He's just given us his purpose. It's to restore us, to redeem us, to bring light and life and deliverance, and an everlasting dominion. This Christmas, folks, don't get caught up in the mere fact of his first coming. Embrace the reason that he came. And the reason is so broad and so vast. It's, it's the salvation of your soul, but it's also ultimately for the glory of God and his dominion over all of creation. That's his plan. Praise God. That's a good word from from the Bible today, isn't it? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. His word is just amazing. Well, thank you for listening. That's a lot. You guys drank from the fire hose today. Good job. Good job. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll dismiss you, and we'll see you Wednesday night. We're going to continue this series on Wednesdays through the end of December, okay? Heavenly Father, I I just thank you for this group. I thank you for their, their passion for your word, and I just ask that you bless them today. Uh, We give you glory, and we look forward to celebrating the birth of Christ, uh, not just in December, but as Christians, our life long. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.